Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And the first thing that I'd like to do today is to thank several of our fellow saloners who sent in donations during the past uh, 10 days or so. They are Ryan J., Vincenzo C., Richard R., Bent J., and D. Gale from Navasota, the blues capital of Texas, if I remember correctly. Anyway, your donations will be used to ensure the continuing operation of the salon on into the, uh, well, the exciting future that lies ahead. I'm sure it will be. And so, thank you ever so much for your financial support of the salon. It's uh, truly appreciated. Now, uh, after we listen to the three talks that I'll be playing for you today, I'll be uh, talking about an idea that I have for some of us to get together in person on a somewhat regular schedule. But first, I'd like to play one of this year's Palenque Norte lectures for you. It was given by Annie Oak, and uh, for someone, it may be the most important talk that I've played here in the salon. If you've been involved with the psychedelic community for a while, I'm sad to say that the probability is that you probably have lost at least one person you knew through the misuse of drugs of one sort or another whether it was through an overdose of some kind or uh, possibly a drunk driving accident. My guess, however, is that even some of your closest friends and family members, uh, well, sometimes probably look a little askance at your interest in our sacred medicines. And that's based mainly on their concern for your safety. In my own case, uh, even I have family members who think that I've gone off the rails with my support of cannabis and other psychoactive substances, But I think that one of the reasons for that is because the establishment that is uh, setting the agenda for the war on drugs has successfully lumped all non-legal drugs into the same category. And yet most of the practicing psychonauts that I know have little or nothing to do with cocaine and crack uh, nor with heroin or the other opioids. In my own case, uh, well, that isn't because I've never tried them. I have, uh, at least some of them. I've not tried crack or heroin, but I have tasted cocaine and a few of the opioids, and, well, fortunately for me, uh, (laughs) I just didn't like them. Now, one of the things that uh, some of us old-timers seem to have in common is that, uh, well, many of us have lost friends to improperly using various substances. And most of these accidents involve doing substances while in water or mixing them with alcohol. How easy it is for us to forget that uh, alcohol and nicotine are also drugs. In fact, uh, those two drugs account for a huge number of deaths each year. But they are legal, and uh, so our friends and family members don't care if we smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol, but they freak out about our using cannabis or psychedelics. However, a new epidemic of dangerous drug use has now come on the scene, and it's begun to give our critics a little something more to think about. As you guessed, I'm talking about the serious rise in overdoses of prescription opioids. The number of deaths caused by opioid overdose in the U.S. has now passed the number of deaths in automobile accidents each year. So, one question that comes up here in our community is whether there is something that we, as individuals, can do to alleviate this situation somewhat. 
And that is precisely what Annie Oak is now going to talk about. So, the next speaker in the Palenque Norte lecture series is Annie Oak. And the title of the talk today is Using Naloxone to Prevent Opioid Overdose. So, Annie is the founder of the Women's Visionary Congress. She holds an MS in science journalism and works with researchers who analyze data about human rights violations. Creator of the San Francisco-based Full Circle Tea House, which we've all been enjoying at our camp here today. She also produces an extremely, extremely popular place here at Burning Man. She also produces community events and studies medicinal plants. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. How's everybody doing? All right. So we're here to talk about risk reduction today. An important part of risk reduction is self-care. Step one in triage, you have to take care of yourself before you can assist others. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first before assisting others during your flight. So we try to take really good care of ourselves. I'm going to ask you during this discussion to keep checking in with yourselves. We're going to talk about some maybe intense stuff for you guys, maybe not. But we really want you to keep checking in, and if you want to stop and ask a question, make a comment, please feel free to do that. So as the uh, nice gentleman just said, my name is Annie Oak. I'm the co-founder of the Women's Visionary Congress, which is a group of psychedelic women based in San Francisco, We're 10 years old now, and we have just recently launched a risk reduction initiative to teach the three, what we consider the three basic drug-related skills that every community supporter, concerned community member should know. One of those skills is how to use a microgram scale. If you all don't know how to do that, it's a really good skill to acquire. Second skill is learning how to use reagent testing kits to test substances that people may or may not want to ingest. And the third skill that we teach in our workshops is how to use naloxone. So we're going to focus on that skill today. We're going to talk about why we're teaching people how to use naloxone. And then we're going to talk about how the law protects you to use it and administer it to others. And then we're going to do a hands-on training. And you are going to get each of you a prescription to use naloxone and walk away from here with a free naloxone kit that you are trained to use. All right. Great question. So naloxone is also called Narcan. You may know it as Narcan. And it is an opioid inhibitor. It is a substance that is prescribed, and you are about to get prescriptions today, and it blocks the opioid receptors in your body. So if you have taken an opioid, let's say a opioid painkiller like Vicodin, or another opioid like methadone or heroin or Oxycontin, and you've overdosed on an opioid, what often happens is you go into respiratory arrest or you begin to have trouble breathing. It suppresses suppresses respiration. 
So if your respirations are suppressed, you're not getting enough oxygen, you could be in real trouble. And if you stop breathing, you will die. And that's how people die of opioid overdoses. They stop breathing. So we're going to talk about some things we can do if you encounter or are with a person that you suspect is having an overdose to opioids, you can intervene and perhaps save their life. So the first thing that is important to know, you may or may not know this, but the U.S. and also many countries around the world are in the midst of an opioid overdose epidemic right now. According to the U.S. government Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who gathers data on this, opioids, including opioid pain relievers prescribed, purchased either through doctors or through the black market, and many are purchased through the black market, killed more than 28,000 people in the U.S. in 2014 and many more thousand were killed this year and last year. We don't have that data yet, but a lot of people die from opioid overdose. Overall, opioid overdoses and deaths associated with them have quadrupled since 1999, and so have sales of these prescription drugs. From 1999 to 2014, more than 165,000 people in the U.S. died from prescription opioid-related overdoses. So of all the overdoses of opioids, half of the opioid overdoses that related to deaths, that resulted in deaths, were from prescription opioids. And half were from opioids that we associate with non-prescription use, such as heroin or methadone. So it's important to remember that people who take opioids are often marginalized, particularly people who take injectable opioids, such as heroin or methadone. And part of our mission as good community members is to stop marginalizing or shaming people for their choice of intoxicants. And to remember that people who take prescription opioids for pain relief, prescribed or from the black market, are also at risk for overdose. So overdose rates are highest among people 25 to 54, which is largely our demographic, And opioid overdose is now the top cause of death by injury in the United States. It has surpassed car accidents for the number one cause of death. And it is higher among non-Hispanic whites and indigenous people than Hispanic people or African-American people. So it is really within largely, mostly our demographic here, Men are more likely to die from overdose, but the mortality gap between men and women is closing quickly. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about what we can do to prevent opioid overdose. And the first thing I want to say is that 
you'll be receiving a prescription to carry naloxone. And here's some really important information about that. In May 2015, the governor of Nevada, Brian Sandoval, signed a new law called the Good Samaritan Drug Overdose Act, which was Senate Bill SB 459 that provides legal protections to people who call for help when witnessing an overdose. Yeah, could I have an amen? Yep. And it authorizes certain healthcare providers to prescribe naloxone to family members or friends of an individual who may be at risk for an opioid overdose. I would suggest that all of us in our social circles knows somebody, whether you're aware of it or not, who is using an opioid for some reason and is at risk for overdose. So that includes all of us here in this room. Now, Nevada has the fourth highest drug overdose mortality rate in the U.S. So when you get your naloxone kit, you are participating in taking care of our burner community, the community here in Nevada, your community back home. This so-called Good Samaritan law is really prevalent throughout the U.S. 28 states, including California, where I received my prescription and where these prescriptions were created for all of you, is one of 28 states. And we're really hoping that more states join to pass laws like this that protect all of us. So I was trained to use naloxone and was trained as a trainer by a group called New Leaf Recovery, which is a nonprofit foundation that provides addiction medicine and treatment. It's based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they receive naloxone kits for people who want to learn how to do this. And they also provide some literature and materials that we're going to use in our training as well. And they get them free from the manufacturers. And we can get them free to give to you. So the manufacturers of naloxone have been donating kits and teaching people how to distribute and use them. And we'd like to make this more prevalent. So the first thing I'm going to do is um, I'm going to pass out. Could someone help me pass these out? These are going to be our training docs for today. So the information that I'm going to give to you is in this pamphlet. And you can follow along with me as we talk about this. So New Leaf Recovery, which has provided the naloxone kits that we're going to give out today, um, has asked us to also um, give them the names of people who are receiving prescriptions to use naloxone. So we have these sign-up forms that you can use, and we'll pass these out in a moment. 
The purpose of these forms is to allow New Leaf Recovery to tell the naloxone manufacturer how many people are being trained so that they can justify getting more free kits. Now, these forms ask some basic information, including your name, email, optional, residence, county, date of birth, signature. Because this is Burning Man and because we really want to destigmatize this, you can use any name you wish, and you can put any information in this form that you want. I don't want people to feel uncomfortable about this, but it's useful to New Leaf, which is why we're doing this for them. So if you don't want to fill out a form or you don't want to give your name, your real name, that's okay. If you do, it's useful to New Leaf Recovery, or you can decide to be Queen Elizabeth II. So let's talk about the mechanism of opiate and opioid overdose. Usually the category of prescription medicines is known as opioids. That's the large category of medicines and substances we're talking about. Some people also refer to them as opiates. And as I said earlier, opioid overdose happens when somebody dies because they've stopped breathing. Now, with overdoses of other substances, such as stimulants, the heart stops or the person has seizures or a stroke. They die in different ways. But with opioids, somebody stops breathing or they go into respiratory distress. Now, some of the risk factors for dying or going into distress from an opioid overdose is mixing an opioid with alcohol, pills, or other substances such as cocaine. And the prevention is use one drug at a time. Don't, miss, don't mix up the highest use drugs. Especially don't mix opioids with alcohol. Second risk factor is tolerance. People who are exiting a detox situation, jail, hospital, especially a methadone detox, and then using opioids again, their tolerance is down. So people can prevent an overdose by using less when their tolerance is low at these times. Another risk factor is quantity and quality. Qualities of many black market drugs, opioids, and many other substances, it's unpredictable. The prevention is to use reliable sources. If you have one, do test shots, etc. if you're using injectable opioids. If you buy opioid pain relievers on the black market, they could be laced with something else. This is what killed Prince. News just came out the other day they found some Oxycontin pills in his house that had fentanyl in them. This is not uncommon. Dealers dealing opioids on the black market will often lace their opioids with fentanyl, which is a very powerful opioid, in order to increase the impact of the dose. And it's possible, because Prince died of a fentanyl overdose, that he didn't know those Oxycontin pills that he was perhaps taking to relieve reportedly his pain were laced with fentanyl. 
and they think that's what killed him. So when people buy prescription painkillers on the black market, they can often be laced with other opioids. This is also true of materials sold as heroin or methadone. People who are using opioids alone behind a closed or locked door where they can't be found, that's also a risk factor. Prevention, use opioids with a friend. Leave the door unlocked. Call somebody. Don't use opioids by yourself. If you're using a prescription opioid and you're concerned about overdose, tell somebody. Say, hey, I have just taken a prescription opioid for my pain and I'm concerned potentially about overdose or I just want someone to know what I've done. There's no shame in doing that. Tell somebody. Let a friend know. And have them monitor your breathing in case you get into some form of respiratory arrest. Now, how do you know when somebody is having a potential opioid overdose? What would be some signs of that? They could be unconscious. What else? They could be gasping. They could not be breathing properly. They could be gargling or snoring or have a raspy, irregular breath. Now, that would be a sign that perhaps they've taken an opioid that is depressing their respiration. I can tell you that here in the tea house next door where people go to sleep, we're watching people breathe. We watch you breathe. If you're deep asleep and a lot of people sleep in the tea house, we want to make sure that your mouth is uncovered, you're not face down sleeping that you have an open airway, and we like to watch your chest rise and fall. So if you come across somebody, and they have very slow, very shallow breathing, you can look, listen, and feel. You can turn your head to the side and see if their chest is rising and falling. You can put your ear next to their mouth and hear that they're breathing. You can put your hand over their mouth and nose to feel their respiration. We want to know that people are breathing in a really steady and normal way. You can also wake them up, rouse them. Are they rousable? And one way to do that is to shake them and say, hey, hey, are you okay? Or, you know, Shake them a little bit and say, hey, are you, are you all right? You look like you're sleeping deeply. Just wake them up a little bit. And just make sure that, that they can say, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, that they seem to have normal respiration. We do this for people in the tea house. If they've been really out for a while and we, we see that, you know, we like to know that if they can talk to us in a normal voice, if they can sit up and wake up for a second, then they're probably okay. Other ways to rouse people if they're deep in some sort of reflective state, or you want to know if they're rousable, you can pinch their fingernails, or you can take your knuckle and rub them on the sternum. And that will elicit a response. It hurts a little bit. So you want to, you want to see if they're, if they're rousable. Can you, can you rouse them? Are they responsive? 
Will they sit up and talk with you? Or just wake up and talk with you? That's really important. So you can also, if you know their name, ask for their name. Hey, hey. You know, Cheddar, are you okay? Um, If they're not rousable, the first thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that they have an open airway because you want to do everything you can to encourage them to breathe, even if their breathing is labored or um, not regular in some way. Now, we have two volunteers who have offered, thank you, Natalie and Theo, to demo how you would put somebody that you might find unresponsive in a position to best breathe. Thea, would you mind uh, whoever is going to be the... Oh, lovely. Would you mind uh, sprawling on your belly in a way that would be perhaps a way that would not facilitate good breathing? All right, so here we have Natalie, and she's got her face down on the ground. What are you going to do, Theo, to see if she's breathing or rousable? Her stomach is moving, so I know she's breathing, but her face is covered. So I might say, hi, Natalie. Natalie, hi, sweetheart. Hey, are you awake? How are you doing? Natalie, so she's unresponsive, so I would probably gently roll her over or maybe open up her airway of some kind or shake her a little bit. I mean, if I know her, I'm not going to like, you know, but she's unresponsive, so. But her mouth is closed, so I would feel, feel, feel for breathing first. And then I would open her mouth while also still checking in with her to see if she's responsive. So you want to do what's called the head lift and chin tilt to make sure that her airway is open. And what might you want to look for in her mouth? Do you want to see whether there's anything obstructing her mouth? Is there gum in there? Is there something that would obstruct her airway? You don't see anything in there. Her airway appears to be open, but she's non-responsive. How's her breathing? It's it's not regular. It's a irregular breathing. Okay, so you have somebody who who has some irregular breathing. Now, irregular, they're gasping, they're snorting, they're gargling, they're snoring, and they're not rousable. You cannot rouse them. He's shaken her and called her name and perhaps done a little sternum rub. Ouch. Or pinched her fingernails. 16 to 20 breaths a minute is a normal respiratory rate. Dr. Natalie has reminded us. So if they're not breathing at that rate and they're not breathing evenly, then you want to make sure that you can get some help. So let's say that Theo is alone and um, he needs to go for help. Let's say that you're the only ones around. Theo, could you put Natalie in a recovery position? In a recovery position. position. Perhaps Natalie could help you 
do that. So if Theo had to go get help and leave Natalie alone, he would put Natalie in this recovery position. And this position makes sure that if Natalie, Natalie throws up, she doesn't choke, keeps her airway open. And Theo would go and either go to the phone and call 911 or, or say to somebody, go call 911, tell them that we have an unresponsive person, and then come back here and let me know that you've done that. Okay? So the first thing you want to do is call for help. If you have to leave them alone, put them in the recovery position and call for help. If you can send someone out to call for help, go have that person call 911. That's the, one of the most important things you can do because you want the paramedics to come and help you out. Now, if he had come across Natalie and Natalie was really not breathing at all, then... You want to, before you initiate the call 911 process, you want to start what we call rescue breathing. Because remember, people die of respiratory failure during overdose. So you want to do what's called rescue breathing, which is breathing for them. And to breathe for them, you want to put their head back and put their chin up, open up their mouth, you want to pinch their nose, and you want to give them two regular breaths, not hurricane breaths, but breaths. You are breathing for them. So give them two breaths, and then you want to breathe for them in this way every five seconds until the paramedics come. And the only break in your rescue breathing should when you start preparing your naloxone to give the injection. Yes, Rue. When Thank you, Rue. We have a lot of knowledge in this room. How many people here are trained in CPR? Awesome. If you're not trained in CPR, please go get CPR training. When they train you in CPR, they're usually training you to help people who have had a heart attack or other types of incidents where you want to do chest compressions to get their circulation going. In the case of an overdose where somebody is not breathing, you want to focus on rescue breaths. That's the most important thing. So you'll do as, as Rue just demonstrated, really tilt the head back, really open the mouth, tilt the jaw, pinch the nose, and give that person... One rescue breath every five seconds until the EMTs come and take over from you. So remember when you ask somebody to call 911, remember to remind them to tell the dispatcher your location. Where are you? You have a non-responsive person we're at 8 and B. If somebody went unresponsive here, we would send a runner to medical, or we would find somebody with a radio, and we would say, we're at the Palenque Norte tent, Palenque Norte tent at the corner of 
Aid in B, we have a non-responsive person, and we need help immediately. And you would say that to a dispatcher on the radio or on your phone, or in our case, on the radio or to a runner. You don't need to say anything about drugs. You just need to say that a person is non-responsive and maybe not breathing properly or not breathing at all. That's all you need to say. And hopefully the EMTs will be on their way. So as you're doing rescue breathing, you want to be assembling your naloxone, which you're going to inject to block the opioid receptors to take Natalie out of respiratory distress. So sometimes the person is not breathing well. You won't know for sure whether or not they've taken an opioid. The great thing about naloxone, and here are our kits. The great thing about naloxone is that it is not toxic. It won't hurt you. If Natalie is not having an opioid overdose and you inject her with naloxone, it's not going to hurt her. If I took this kid and injected myself in the thigh right now with naloxone, the injection wouldn't feel great, but it's not going to hurt me. Also, it doesn't uh, combine negatively with other substances. So if in doubt, if you think it could be an opioid overdose, give the naloxone. It's not going to hurt them. And you are covered by the Good Samaritan laws as long as you are using naloxone in a reasonable way. What we like to say is in the thigh and not the eye. As long as you're injecting them in a place where one would reasonably do that, the naloxone itself is not going to hurt them and it could save their life. That's the beautiful thing about naloxone. It's not going to hurt them. It could save their life. If in doubt, do the injection. So generally, when we do the injection, the naloxone is what we call intramuscular. It goes into the muscle, not into the vein or an artery. So um, the biggest, nicest muscular thing is Natalie's lovely thigh. Yeah, can we hear it for Natalie's lovely thigh? Woo! A great, beautiful target. Also booty. Also booty. Let's not forget the booty. Um, Or the arm. Fleshy part. Now, when you give the injection, you don't have to take their clothes off. You don't have to clean their skin. You can inject them right through a pair of jeans or right through their clothes. You don't have to do anything except make sure that you get the dose inside them. And what we're going to do today is we're going to practice giving an injection for those of you who have never done that. And we're going to practice loading up a dose of naloxone into a syringe. We're not going to inject the pads These are our lovely injection pads because we don't want to mess up our pads, but we're going to practice up drawing up the naloxone into a syringe, and then we're going to take the naloxone out of the syringe, and we're going to practice doing an injection. So 
the way we're going to do this is we're going to set up some injection stations when we're ready to do it. We have about six of these pads, and we're going to set up some stations with some syringes, and we're going to teach you some basic safety methods for handling syringes and pulling up an injection of naloxone out of an ampule. And we're going to talk about how to do that. So one of the things that's important to know about naloxone is that it takes several minutes to kick in. We've all seen Pulp Fiction. How many people have seen that awesome scene in Pulp Fiction where the guy takes the needle and he, he puts it, you know, right into her, her you know, heart? And, uh, and, of course, it's Uma Thurman who's looking fabulous, you know, and then Uma, like, immediately comes to, and it's very dramatic. Well, it doesn't work like that with naloxone, unfortunately, and we won't look like Uma Thurman, sadly, while we're doing it. I'm sorry about that. So Uma's looking great, and she immediately sits up and, you know, does her Uma Thurman thing. But with naloxone, what happens is it takes a couple of minutes to take effect. So you can inject somebody in the thigh or in the upper arm or the booty, and it will take a few minutes to take effect. While that's happening, you need to continue doing rescue breathing every five seconds. And if the EMTs come, a good thing to do is to, they're going to rush in with all their gear, EMTs, EMTs. You want a calm scene. If you've given an injection, you want to put the syringe away, keep the area clear of paraphernalia, you want to carefully explain to them what you've done, that you're prescribed to use naloxone, why you've chosen to administer naloxone to this person, how you found them. They were unresponsive. They were not breathing properly. And you want to present a scene, that, a scene that's calm and in control. And this is especially true if law enforcement shows up. They're going to want to know, like, who are you? What are you doing? If the person wakes up after a few minutes, perhaps one to five minutes, they're going to be a little surprised and they're going to be a little uncomfortable because you have just interrupted their experience and they're going to be in immediate withdrawal because the naloxone blocks the opioid receptors. Now, if you want to see how this looks, go to YouTube. Because on YouTube, there are a whole bunch of videos that show this happening in real time. And you can see somebody going, oh my gosh, my friend's not breathing. I think this is an opioid overdose. They load up the dose, they give it to them, and then you can see how long it takes to take effect and what a person looks like when they come to. And they're often not really happy. So they might be thrashing around a little bit. You want to you wanna keep doing your rescue breathing, make sure their airway is open. They come to, you want to reassure them. You can say, hey, Natalie, you weren't breathing. 
we were really concerned that you were perhaps overdosing. We have given you a naloxone injection. We're here. We're staying with you. We're not going to leave you. Oh, by the way, here are the EMTs or here's the nice police officer who's ideally being supportive of what we've just done. Tell them what's going on. Inform them of what's happening. The person won't remember overdosing. They won't know what's happening at all. Now, if the person doesn't respond within a minute to five minutes of this happening and you're still doing the rescue breathing, there's a second dose of naloxone. There are two doses of naloxone in each of these kits. Give them the second dose. But know that the naloxone, each dose of naloxone will wear off within 30 to 45 minutes. And that person can go back into overdose. So it's important that you really get them to medical care or that you summon the medical care because you could give them the injection and they could start overdosing again. Okay? Um, And this kind of goes without saying, but it's probably a good idea to not let them do more opioids in this interim after you've given the naloxone. No more prescription painkillers, no more heroin, no more methadone, whatever it is that they've done, and no more other substances. Don't let them intoxicate with whatever they've been doing. If they come to and they want water, sit them up. Don't let them choke or aspirate on water. Keep that airway open. Make sure that their airway is open and that they're breathing. And you really need to keep an eye on that person. Ideally, by this time, either the EMTs have come or you can find a way to get them to a hospital or to a clinic or to a medical facility within an hour, ideally, or they will start to overdose again. The naloxone will wear off. Now, as I said, each of these packets contains two doses of naloxone. It also includes a really handy card. If you completely forget what to do, this handy card here will tell you exactly what to do. Number one, call 911. Number two, rescue breathing. Number three, give naloxone. Right? So those are the steps. If you come across somebody and they're not breathing at all, Give them a couple rescue breaths. Get 911 going. Keep the rescue breathing going, of course. So each kit contains this, and it also contains information about what the kit contains. Two naloxone vials or two vials of Narcan. Two vials of Narcan. Two syringes with safety needles and a card with training information and a summary of the Good Samaritan Law. So it has a summary of the Good Samaritan Law from California, where these kits come from. The Good Samaritan Law in California was passed in January 2014, and that is a year earlier than the Good Samaritan Law was passed in Nevada. But there's reciprocity. So since these kits are being prescribed to you under the Good Samaritan Law in California, the Good Samaritan Law in Nevada will cover you for the use of these kits. So the kit contains the naloxone, this card, which has information about the Good Samaritan Law on it, 
in case anybody asks you, what law are you citing to use this kit? It's right here. And if you're in Nevada, you can say, hey, Nevada passed a law like this last year. Isn't that awesome? Yes. And the kit also includes a card, which is your overdose prevention and rescue certification. This is your prescription for naloxone. And it says this card certifies, and you're going to fill your name onto this card after you get your training. It certifies that you have been trained in overdose and prevention and rescue by the New Leaf Recovery Foundation, which is the addiction medicine and treatment foundation that is giving out these kits, and given a prescription to carry naloxone by, in this case, Dr. Alex Stolkup, MD, and there's his license number. He's the medical director of New Leaf. And it's going to be issued on a certain date, so we'll fill out this date. And then it has the address and the phone number and the fax number and the web address of New Leaf Recovery Foundation, just in case anybody asks. Like, where did you get this? Who gave this to you? Who trained you to use this? And you'll be able to say right here, this is how I've been trained to use this. So this kit also contains two syringes. Now, these syringes are awesome because these syringes, you see the gray thing on the top of this syringe? These are safety syringes. So that means that once you use the syringe, you can clip the safety clip over it. It's a piece of plastic. And this syringe cannot be used again a second time. So you don't need a sharps box or a box to prevent you from being stuck by a used syringe. You don't have to put a cap on it like you do other kinds of syringes. You can just click over this safety and we'll show you how to do that. And you can dispose of these syringes at any pharmacy or hospital or doctor's office that will take a used syringe. So these are really awesome to have. They're really handy. So what we're going to practice is we're going to practice how to give an injection and how to draw up naloxone from a syringe. And I'm going to demo this first. And then we're going to set up six of these stations and let you practice how to draw up some naloxone from a syringe. Okay? You guys all set? Any questions? No. If you give them two naloxone injections, then that's still okay. It's a really good question. Each of these vials has 400 micrograms of naloxone. The EMTs carry uh, kits with 2,000 micrograms. So what you're giving them is a dose that will block the opioid receptors but isn't nearly as big a dose as the EMTs will give you. And if the naloxone you've given that person is not working they might choose to give them another dose. You can't hurt them. Naloxone is a very safe substance. Does it expire? Yes. 
The doses do expire, and the kits will have information on them about the expiration of the doses. This dose expires the 1st of February, 2017. If you your dose is expiring or you have an expired dose and that's all you have, use it. If you want to get a new dose and it's, ex- and it's expired, you can contact New Leaf Recovery and their phone number is right on the pouch or go in your local community to somebody else who is distributing naloxone. Okay? And before I forget to mention it, that recording was sent to the salon by Frank Nuccio, uh, who also recorded the rest of this year's Palenque Norte lectures, uh, which will be played here in the salon over the next few months. So, uh, hey, thanks again, Frank. And also, a big thank you to Annie Oak. If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you are already familiar with some of the important work that Annie has done for the psychedelic community. In addition to founding the Women's Visionary Congress, which has grown into one of the world's leading forums for women and psychedelics, Annie is also one of the co-founders of Camp Soft Landing at Burning Man, which is the camp that hosts the Planque Norte lectures each year. And while there are many, many people involved in both the camp and the Congress, well, they both began as the spark of an idea in the mind of one person. And we are truly honored to have her wisdom and guidance here in our community. And now I'm pleased to let you know that the Symposia magazine and storytelling events, uh, well, they're producing quite a few new stories and talks, and uh, some of which are going to be played here in the salon. And it looks like we're going to be hearing a lot more from this group in the future, uh, in that several of them are also members of the Psychedelic Salon 2.0 team. Actually, uh, we've already been treated to some of their work, and, uh, well, right now I'm going to play a talk that was recorded at one of their events last October, uh, right after the Horizons Conference in New York. The speaker is Shannon Claire Pettit, who is also the Zendo Project Community Engagement Coordinator for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And if you've been to Burning Man or some of the other large festivals, Well, you recognize the Zendo Project as one of the major harm reduction activities in the dance community. So uh, now let's join Shannon and learn a little more about this community-based risk reduction effort. Um, so, how many of you have heard about the Zendo Project before? Okay, yeah, you're you're our community. <laughs> um, So I'm, you know, I'm not going to preach to you about what the Zendo does, and um, you know, a lot of the stories from our guests are their stories. So I'm not even here to tell you, you know, their story, although you know, I'll make reference to it. But I wanted to talk about, as a community, what the Zendo community is and what it represents. <laughs> I see some Zendo people here. Um, And what we can do as a community. So Zendo is really a response to crisis. Um, we call it harm reduction. And um, when somebody is having a difficult psychedelic experience, they can come to the safe space that we create, the Zendo space, at music festivals. And we go to music festivals internationally, um, also nationally, lots of small ones, especially on the West Coast. And just talking to one of our volunteers, Mason, about 
trying to bring more of a presence on the East Coast here. Um, So it is a space that we create physically at music festivals, but it's a space that we create with each other. And so the, the four principles of psychedelic harm reduction are sitting, not guiding, that we sit with each other. I'm not here to tell you what to think, what to do with your night, what to do with your drug use, what to ingest tonight or what not to ingest. Um, But we're having a conversation about how that could be. Um, Guidance. And especially if you came to me in a crisis, not sure, kind of confused, maybe paranoid, uncertain, um, I'm not going to, you know, direct you. I'm going to be with your experience. So I want to be with you here and figure out how we can collect our experiences and create a community. Um, the second psychedelic principle is, um, well, I got them out of order now, but the first one is creating safety. Um, so we create safety in lots of different ways. It can be a physical safety. It can be an emotional safety. So can you just shout out a couple things of what makes you feel safe in community or at a party? Teddy bears? People Someone that listens. Period. Listening. Hugs. Hugs. Quiet. Comfortable Quiet. seating. Jokes. Water. Jokes. Quiet. Jokes. Jokes. Smiling. Toilets. <laughs> Think about how you might want your toilet to be if it was safe. <laughs> toilet harm And think about the most unsafe toilet you've ever seen. <laughs> so, so we create safety, and you know, especially in a psychedelic experience, we're very sensitive to that. Um, that's why the porta potties at Burning Man are really that awful. Um, and so, you know, at Zendo, we've gotten smart. We actually have special porta potties that we hire now just for our guests that they have, have locks on them. And we have little lights in there. And, um, you know, just those those kinds of things are the, the kinds of things that let let you know, that let me know when I see somebody doing that for me that I'm cared for. So that's a way that we create safety here. Um, you know, even in this room is, is how are people, you know, have their arms together? How are you feeling touched by people around you? And, and in some ways that doesn't feel comfortable. In some ways it produces comfort. Speaking of which, there's a very small chair up here if you'd like to sit. (laughs) Um, So that's safety. Um, I told you about sitting, not guiding. Um, And talking through, not down. So similar to sitting, not guiding. Um, We're going through a process. Um, So there's no particular agenda. Somebody mentioned agenda. There's no way that you are... Well, there are ways that you are expected to be. So how do we deal with what our expectations are and yet having authenticity and authentic expression. That's one of the really amazing things about the psychedelic community is acceptance. Um, look at the kind of clothes that people are wearing at our conference. Look at the kinds of ways that they're talking. Um, but there's still a long ways to go. Um, has there been something that you wanted to yes, say tonight that you felt like, oh, I couldn't say that? They would think I was strange or they might not understand what I meant or... You know, you might have felt that way at the conference. So figuring out as a community, not just Zendo working with people, but here together, how can we encourage each other to be expressive? How can we create space for that? How can we role model that, you know, it's scary, it can be vulnerable, but we can be expressive together. Um, So the fourth principle 
difficult. Difficult is not the same as bad. I like to talk about awkwardness, too. So you can see I'm relating things that happen in the Zendo, which is a very specific environment, to community, which is a a much broader one, which can include us here. And difficult can be social awkwardness. Um, We have, you know, MAPS has a study that deals with social anxiety and autism. I think we all have a certain degree of social anxiety. And psychedelics can prohibit us from engaging, but they can also take away our inhibitions and allow us to engage. So really, how do we, in those moments that we might be stuck in the um, paranoia, perhaps, or feeling like everyone's staring at you, whether you're on a psychedelic or not, um, how do we you know, work with that, and how do we communicate with other people? You're okay, you're loved here. Um, so I'm kind of just planting some, throwing out some ideas and maybe planting some seeds of a conversation I hope is, you know, I know is, is already happening, I know is continuing, and um, I'd like it to be even more literal if possible about, you know, what do we want to create together, not just in our research, not just in our projects, but in the way that we interact with each other, um, in the way that we interact with our families, in the way that we interact with our coworkers, and acknowledging that there are social expectations and boundaries. And you know, I'm not saying let's get rid of, of all of that and be full peer expression 24 hours a day, but how can we create that avenue for artistic freedom? Um, so I kind of want to give you guys a dare. And um, my dare is, you know, and you don't have to do it. It's totally optional. Um, <laughs> Is, is for tonight to do something that's vulnerable for you. To be vulnerable, and if you want the bonus stare, it's to do it with somebody you don't know. And that could be sharing a personal story that you might have kept to yourself, or doing a dance move in the hallway because you felt like it, whereas you might not have done it because you weren't sure how people would have responded to it. Or it might just be approaching somebody and, and asking what they're passionate about. So we can kind of use tonight as a medium and, and tomorrow and all the rest of the days of our life as an experiment about, about being together. There's so much that can be said about that, but I'm just going to let the community be the, the, be the experiment and hopefully I can continue talking about how that looks with you in individual conversations. Now, in addition to providing a platform for activists like Shannon to uh, tell about their programs, the Symposia people also provide a place for us to uh, come and tell our stories. I've heard uh, several of these stories now, and, uh, well, I find them all very interesting. By uh, keeping their allowed presentation time short, I think that they've uh, forced the storytellers to keep it simple and stay on point which can uh, sometimes be a problem for the more loquacious members of our community. (laughs) I say this with a smile on my face, because the next story that I'm going to play from that same recording session is by my somewhat loquacious friend, Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, uh, which is the sponsor of the Zendo Project. And uh, after we hear Rick's story, I'll be back and uh, try to pull these three talks together for you. And so we'll give a story from Rick Doblin, who... 
figured out a way to make a difference. Um, well, one of the ways that I made a difference was being inspired by my own psychedelic experiences. And so I, I think, thank you for the opportunity to tell some uh, drug story. <laughs> and um, t- today there was a, a fair amount of discussion about um, the mystical experience and how the mystical experience is uh, connected to therapeutic outcome with psilocybin, but how that's not the case with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. And yet, for me, the most mystical experience I've ever had was with MDMA. So I've been thinking about that a lot and thought that that might be a a story to share how that came about. And it it began at Esalen, where I was learning about MDMA, back actually in 1982. And it was a month-long workshop on the mystical quest taught by Stan and Christina Groff. And it involved holotropic breath work and... Um, and a lot of guest lectures, and uh, one of them was Brother David Steindlrost, who's a Roman Catholic monk, who is uh, as amazing he hasn't been excommunicated, <laughs> you know, but he's not a, uh, he's like a, a mystic, uh, ecumenical, very open-minded, and when I learned about MDMA, it was legal in 1982, and we were starting to think we needed to approach other people uh, from not stereotypical kind of drug-using groups, but just um, people like monks and rabbis and uh, meditators. And, and so with, and I started talking about MDMA with Brother David, and, and it, made it, it, it felt to me like it's very peaceful, it's very self-accepting, and that in half dose it could be really good for meditation. So Brother David tried it in the monastery and uh, (laughs) talked about some of the... One of the other monks started trying it as well. Um, And I I got called to the Father Superior. Like, like, what is these monks? And, and, you know... (laughs) and, And it was really helpful that it was legal still. And, and I said it, it's part of this understanding of mysticism and global spirituality and there's this um, you know, d- deeper kind of um, respect that's being paid to the experience and it's not something you do all the time but you can deepen your meditation practice perhaps and it's, it's people have used fasting and all these ways and, um, and, and this uh, Father Spirit said okay, they can keep doing it <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, amazing. And so I just was thinking about that a lot. And, and there was this um, part of this um, suing the DEA where it was um, a little bit um, unclear for me how to do it in a skillful way and, and not get it really you know, smashed. Um, and yet at the same time, um, I felt it could be done. And, and I had through these workshops at Esalen and um, the meetings, I'd gotten pretty comfortable at at being there, and I'd found my spot. I found a place to camp out. Um, You're not supposed to camp out there, but there's a place right down by the ocean where it was kind of private, 
And when the tide went out, um, I could gather up some small stones and stuff in buckets and, and create this little bed. The mountain came straight down to the ocean. There was big rocks out there that, that blocked the, um, the waves. You know, there's a, a freshwater stream going right by. There's mountains right behind you. Um, and the high tide would come, like on the stage, the high tide would come like right where you guys, your feet are, right there. But you could have this, and then the mountain is right here. But there was this little spot that was like perfectly safe <laughs> um, throughout the night, throughout the high tides, the low tides. It's just, you know, exquisite little, little spot there. And I got pretty comfortable uh, camping out there and, um, you know, walking around there at night. And I thought, okay this is a really good spot to take MDMA one night. <laughs> and, you know, I felt like I could do it by myself, that there was people there if I needed to talk to anybody. It was, it was, you know, I felt really protected in that way. I didn't have to worry the phone was going to ring, the police were going to come by. Uh, nothing. And so I did it at, at night. It was just an incredible night. And, and I spent a fair amount of time um, looking at a tree and... Um, imagining it was different like DEA people um, <laughs> sort of looking at me. And I was trying to figure out, well, how do I build this relationship? <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, you know, if I you know, could see ominous figures or friendly figures, and I, I just somehow came to the idea that... Um, Sort of that they're looking for what's under the rock. They're looking for what's hidden. They're, their whole thing is conspiracies and secrets and all this kind of stuff. And you just come at them straight directly. Um, it's probably a safer way to do it. You know, even if you're still occasionally having these experiences yourself <laughs> and talking about it and being willing to acknowledge that. But it's something that I felt like, okay, I could. Um, do it in, in that way. And, and that there's a part of the DEA people that really want to know what drugs are like. I mean, they're, 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 they do because the stuff that they've been told about how bad it is, it's like nobody would want to take this stuff. But people do. So they're kind of curious about it. And it, it's good to, I think, help them see. Sometimes so I, I found myself even sometimes explaining what, what it was like to be high or stuff with, with some DEA people. <laughs> and, and so I, I sort of worked through that kind of um, process, and then the tree became back to a tree. <laughs> and, and then I just was like um, amazed. It's like it was now in the middle of the night, and the stars were just so super bright, and the, the waves were crashing, and... And I just felt like the universe was so big, and I was just this little speck. And, and then I felt scared; I could just disappear. Like there, it was like, like, and I just almost like thrown up into the universe, or just be connected, just somehow lose. It just was a little bit scary part for a moment. And then I felt like, well, I haven't disappeared. <laughs> somehow I am still here. I mean, just like, and. It was just this kind of recognition there was something that was keeping me there and that this something was gravity. And this gravity was kind of this loving force that was keeping me um, 
together. And, and I was wondering, like, how does Brother David live a celibate life? You know, why, why does a monk, why do you want to do that? <laughs> and, and then I kind of saw that, that the, the good part of it is that then I felt like this gravity, that I was cradled in the arms of gravity. And it was like a lover. I, I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. Um, it, it felt like so warm, like it was actually a real person. And, but it was this gravitational force gravity and I felt this cradled in the arms of gravity and it made me feel connected in a way that um, it uh, I never was quite so lonely ever more, ever again after that and it it, it felt like a, um, a sense of yeah this was the most um, woven into everything me disappearing and, and still being there and feeling this this loving connection and that was 1985. Um, it, it did have those positive effects. And then a few months ago, um, I had a chance to sit next to Brother David after all, after 30 years, um, and um, at a conference in, in um, Madison. And so I was able to talk to him a little bit at dinner, and I, I kind of was able to um, share with him that this most mystical experience of my life had been uh, contemplating him and his, his life and that, that uh, I wondered, you know, what, what he, and he, he's, he's an amazing man. And, and, and so he, um, I said it was about gravity, that, that for me it came to be the, the, the loving force of gravity. And, and he looked at me and he said, you know, um, I think about gravity every single day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. It's all about gravity. And uh, dare I say, it's also about levity. <laughs> and I'll let you think that through for yourself. Actually, uh, I'd planned on doing what I said earlier and attempt to pull these three talks together in a way that, uh, well, at least made sense to me. However, uh, well, it was almost a week ago that I got to the point where we now find ourselves. And during that time, I wrote several pages of comments to add here. Then I rewrote those comments several times. And uh, yet I kept hitting a wall of some kind that kept me from finishing this podcast. So I went ahead and revised my comments yet again. My problem was that uh, everything that I wanted to say took, well, lengthy explanations to uh, fit into the context of this podcast. But I've finally come to the conclusion that, well, <laughs> if I don't get to some kind of a stopping point here, I'll never get today's program out to you. And so I'm going to abandon all of the things that I'd planned on saying right now and just finish with a single story, one that I hope fits in with our theme of risk reduction. However, this story isn't about someone dying of an overdose. It's about the fact that, uh, well, like it or not, from time to time we all wind up with some kind of a responsibility here and there to uh, keep our more impetuous friends from getting into trouble. During the summer of 1962, I had one of the greatest summer jobs that a college student could get. I was the sailing instructor at the Houston Yacht Club. And one of my duties was to sit in on the meetings of the club's junior sailors, 
Uh, they called themselves the Ragnots, and my only responsibility was to attend their meetings and answer any technical questions that came up about the uh, tactics and rules of sailboat racing. And this particular afternoon, which was a week or so before the summer season at the club was to end, well, when their meeting was finished, I became kind of engaged in a hot argument about a situation that had occurred the previous week during one of our races. And while I was talking with some of the kids, I didn't notice that one of them, a brilliant 13-year-old, had jumped into the front seat of an older kid's car. Now, since I was a close friend of his parents, I was aware of the fact that they didn't allow him to ride in cars with other teenage drivers. But it really wasn't my responsibility to watch him or anyone else uh, when they weren't out on the water. So, uh, well, I really wasn't paying any attention when several cars full of kids sped out of the club's parking lot. A short while later, the club's manager came down to the docks to find me and tell me that he had just received a call from the local police. There had been a car accident nearby. It was a single car accident, and one of the people in the car was dead at the scene. And so the manager told me that he wanted me to drive down to the culvert where the car went off the road and see if it was actually one of our members' children, as the police suggested. Now this was in the days before cars had seat belts, and uh, unfortunately my young friend had been thrown through the windshield and went headfirst into the cement culvert that the driver had skidded into. I don't need to go into the gory details, but I'm sure you can imagine what I found. Now this young man was one of the golden children. He came from a wealthy and well-connected family. He was exceptionally bright and had a very charming personality. On top of that, he was one of the best young sailors at the club. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that he would go on to do great things. But suddenly, very suddenly, there he was, a shredded piece of human flesh with not a speck of life left in his body. For over 50 years now, I've been asking myself why I wasn't paying closer attention to the commotion of that gang of kids taking off from the club. Because if I had been, well, maybe I would have noticed that young man getting into a situation that he wasn't allowed to be in and that wasn't safe. He was a truly integral part of our community, and in my heart I have always felt that I let him and his family down. So why am I telling this non-drug-related story here in the salon? Well, it's because we all most likely have been at a point where one of our friends uh, maybe had too much to drink, but still insisted on driving home. And more often than not, those drunken friends get on the road because we are too timid to make a scene and take their keys away. That, too, is a form of risk reduction and is one that will most likely come up in your life more frequently than having to deal with an overdose or other emergency. More often than any of us would like it to happen, we find ourselves in a position to do or say something that perhaps could lessen a friend's chances of doing harm to herself or himself. And what we do or what we don't do about it may be something that dogs us for the rest of our lives. Harm reduction and risk reduction is the responsibility of each and every one of us. In the psychedelic community, we seem to have more people willing to take risks than is found in the general population. Actually, we wouldn't be using psychedelic substances if we weren't risk takers. But my hope, however, is that in the decades ahead, we can grow into a healthy community of very old risk takers. And it's up to each and every one of us to make that happen. 
So I hope that you'll follow up on some of the things that you've heard today and uh, prepare yourself to be one of the people that we can count on to move us safely into the future. And uh, in regards to moving into the future, well, next week over on the forums, I'll be posting more information about this, but I've decided to put a stake in the ground and begin hosting a monthly salon at a little coffee shop here in North San Diego County. Now, these salons will take place at noon on the second Sunday of each month, and uh, soon I'll be posting the details about these salons on our forums. Uh, Hopefully, I'll see you there, and uh, if you can't make it, well, who knows, maybe we can even periscope some of them. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>